Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. Happy New Year, tree fans. Wait, didn't I already do this last episode? I did, but this week we're talking about a different kind of New Year celebration. In the Jewish faith, there is a holiday called Tubishvat, or Tree New Year. It is a holiday that is supposed to herald the coming spring and collectively turns the calendar over for trees and plants that provide. It's a time to give thanks for the Earth's bounty we have been blessed with. Now, I'm not Jewish, but I've felt it necessary to celebrate any holiday focused on a tree and explore how we became connected to the plants humans so value. Jews celebrate the Tree New Year by honoring and eating from what are called the Seven Species of Israel. These are the plants Moses' spies brought back from Israel to prove the land they had found was indeed fertile and their 40 years of wandering in search of the Promised Land were over. Wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. In 2021, I covered the pomegranate. In 2022, I talked about the olive tree. And I also discussed the date palm just last fall with its significance in the Jewish holiday Sukkot. For Tubishvat 2023, I am talking about the fig tree. Fans of the show may recognize that I have covered multiple fig trees already, specifically the banyan and the bodhi tree, with a mention of the rubber fig in my latex tree medley. Figs are an interesting plant group to revisit because there's a ton of them. Their biology is also absurdly fascinating, and different religions seem to hold great favor to different species of fig. The banyan is important in Hinduism, the Bodhi tree is a part of how Buddhism first started, and today's topic, the common fig, is extremely prevalent in Jewish faith and culture as well as in the other Abrahamic religions. And this is actually the fig tree where we get the commercially grown fruit that you'll find in grocery stores. So this is another wonderful opportunity to find deeper connection in what may have become mundane everyday life. So let's learn about how the fig found its place in the Tubishvat holiday and why it is so important to the faith of so many. Like I said, I've covered a few figs already, and depending on how recently you've listened to those episodes, you may already be well-versed in fig biology. But there are going to be some key differences this time around, so let's go over all of it again. We'll start with how the fig relates to other plants that you may recognize. Figs belong to the mulberry family, Moraceae. Moraceae is home to 38 genera, or groups, of plants, and includes around 1,100 plant species in total. The most recognizable trees in the mulberry family include mulberries, which feels obvious, as well as Osage orange and the jackfruit. Osage oranges are these green, bumpy, softball-sized fruits that don't smell very good. If you grew up in Oklahoma, Texas, or Arkansas, you very well may have spent your summer days throwing these small cannonballs at your friends. Jackfruit makes for a great meat substitute. When cooked, the texture is not dissimilar to pulled meat, and it doesn't have too much flavor. A couple years ago, I was actually able to win over a big-time meat-eater friend of mine with some vegan pulled meat sliders using jackfruit. The secret is liquid smoke. 
These three fruit trees only comprise a small portion of Moraceae, though. This family is also referred to as the fig family because out of 1,100 species, 800 are figs. The fig genus is referred to scientifically as ficus, which is just the Latin origin for the name fig. If you've heard of houseplants called ficuses, that is going to refer to a specific Asian fig species called the weeping fig that is very popular to grow at home. Now, because ficus is such a large group, we can further divide it into subgenera. The banyan and the bodhi tree, as well as the rubber fig, belong to the largest subgenus, Eurostigma. This subgroup is generally referred to as the strangler figs, or the banyans. By the way, I've gotten some comments about how I pronounced that name in my banyan episode. I think I called it banyan, or something similar to that. Apparently, it is more commonly pronounced banyan, so I'm switching how I'm saying it so I sound more normal. Back to Eurostigma, it's common to think of the aggressively spreading nature of strangler figs with their wide crowns and aerial roots, and just associate that with how fig trees are. But the truth is, that is just one type of fig tree. Our common fig, in Latin ficus carica, belongs to a separate subgenus called ficus, which I know is also the overall genus name. I guess taxonomists just decided that these were the figiest of figs. The biggest difference between these figs and the banyans is their overall growth form. Common figs don't go through the whole process of starting life by strangling another plant. They don't send roots down from the branches to make new trunks, and thus their canopy isn't so wide and spreading. They are a lot more typical in regards to their shape as a tree. When grown, they are often shorter and can be shrubbier, but they do have the potential to grow up to be around 30 feet or 9 meters tall. I've seen some cases where they can get taller than that, but for the most part, they would be considered an understory tree. You know, if they were in a forest, they'd grow in the shade underneath larger trees. Another big difference between it and its relatives is the shape of the fig leaves. For the banyan and bodhi tree, you'll see oval or heart-shaped leaves with a long tapered point at the end. The common fig's leaves are shaped how you expect fig leaves to look, with three lobes. When you see older art featuring nude figures, and their genitals are covered with these three-lobed leaves, those are fig leaves. But despite a few differences, there are a few notable similarities among the various fig trees, one of which is latex. Just like the rubber fig, the common fig produces a sticky, milky, white substance that we know as latex. It is this same substance that is found in other plants that is the raw material used to make natural rubber. Raw latex is a skin irritant, though, so getting some on your skin and exposing it to certain kinds of light will likely give you an itchy, burny rash. Another big similarity is the fig fruit itself. More specifically, what it really is and how these fruits are made. Fig fruits, as they are known, start as these green orbs hanging from the branches. I say orbs, they're more pear-shaped. But what these orbs actually are are inside-out flowers. Inside the orb are the bits that need to get pollinated in order to become seed-bearing fruits that yield the next generation of figs. And the way they get pollinated is with the help of burrowing wasps. What's immediately fascinating about this situation is that it doesn't take any old wasp to dig in and pollinate those flowers. Each individual fig species requires its own unique wasp species within the insect family Agonidae. 
The way that it works is that a female wasp belonging to the species Blastophaga pisenes will burrow its way into this inside-out flower. But there's a couple of important details with this scenario. First, we are starting with this wasp burrowing into the flower structure of a male fig tree. There are male fig flower structures called caprifigs that produce pollen, and separate female fig structures that are fertilized by the pollen and thus produce fruits. Second, this wasp is pregnant and is burrowing in here to lay her eggs. And she's not alone. Several of these pregnant wasps are all burrowing into this caprifig to lay their eggs together. The opening they go through, though, is so small that they end up tearing off their wings while trying to burrow in and will ultimately spend the rest of their short lives in this structure. They lay their eggs, they die, and the eggs begin to hatch. The male wasps, upon being born, will mate with the female wasps and then use their strong male mandibles to create a more comfortable tunnel to escape the caprifig with their wings still attached. The female wasps, now pregnant, will follow the males out and find another fig to burrow into so they can give birth and die. But they'll have male fig pollen all over them from being all up in that flower structure, so if they find a female fig flower structure to burrow into, it gets pollinated and transforms into a seed-bearing structure, which we call the fig fruit. This is incredibly wacky, and you might be wondering at this point, if I eat a fig, am I eating wasps? That is a great question. Now, one more thing about the common fig that separates it from its fig siblings is that this is not the only way this tree reproduces. Figs are one of many fruits that have exhibited a mutation known as parthenocarpy. Parthenocarpy is when a plant produces fruits with no seeds. These seedless plants cannot naturally reproduce, so it is a trait that makes no sense for natural selection, a random error, but it is a trait that humans love and now try to replicate. Maybe because having really seedy fruits would be annoying to eat. That's why we produce seedless bananas, seedless pineapples, and seedless oranges. Or maybe it's because a plant has a super convoluted method of reproduction, like the fig. A very long time ago, humans discovered this mutation in figs and were able to cultivate more seedless versions of the tree by cutting off specific parts of it, like a budding branch, sticking that in some soil, and growing that into a whole new fig tree. This is called cutting propagation, which is technically a method of cloning an individual plant. It bypasses the whole wasp situation. Another way that humans can artificially manipulate fig reproduction is by pretending to be the wasp. No, you don't need to go shopping for a wasp costume. You use a knife or a toothpick. Stick something sharp into a male fig flower structure, get some pollen on it, then stick that pollinated utensil into a female fig flower structure, and voila! Just be careful not to let the wasps unionize because you just took their jobs. Because figs grow in more tropical and subtropical latitudes, these trees actually have a few fruiting periods throughout the year. There is a fruiting season early in the year that was a result of the previous fall's pollination. But because it developed over the winter with less available resources, this first crop is typically seen as not worth harvesting. The main fruiting season is a second period, usually in the summer. 
and I've read that if the climate and environmental conditions are particularly favorable, there may be a third fruiting period later in the fall. So between the figs, we have some similarities and some differences. One big question is, why do some religions favor this fig species over that fig species? And the answer is location. The 800 different fig species are spread across the tropical latitudes. The banyan and bodhi tree are found more around South Asia, where Hinduism and Buddhism first flourished. The Abrahamic faiths are attracted to the common fig because that is the species more commonly found where those religions sprang up, the Levant region of Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon, as well as the surrounding areas that we refer to as the Near or Middle East. I will say, this is an educated approximation. When we cultivate a certain crop for a long time, history doesn't always hold on to where we first found it growing wild. But one theory that supports the common fig's origins in the Levant is that the Hebrew word for fig, peena, is supposedly not derived from any other Semitic language group. The idea that this word wasn't adopted from another language is supposed to suggest that it wasn't transported from somewhere else. But like I said, those origins are shrouded in history. Because it is possible that the common fig's beginnings as a crop came before any other farmed food. The Middle East is often referred to as the cradle of civilization. This is not where humans became humans, but it is where humans first gathered, practiced agriculture, and built cities. One of the oldest cities that we are aware of is the famous walled city of Jericho, which existed where modern-day Palestine is. The ruins of Jericho date back to around 9000 BCE, making it over 11,000 years old. This is incredibly impressive, but near Jericho, archaeologists discovered another settlement. We don't know much about what this town was, we refer to the site as Gilgal I. The stones around Gilgal I were dated to be almost 11,500 years old, comparable to Jericho, but still perhaps centuries older. Inside one of the unearthed houses in Gilgal I, scientists found nine dried figs. Incredibly well-preserved, these were not wild figs, but a cultivated variety of fig that is notably sweeter than wild figs and seedless. This puts fig cultivation at some point earlier than 9500 BCE, but we don't know how old exactly. The discovery that we were already selectively breeding figs at this point was astonishing, considering that the earliest evidence of cultivated grains, like barley and wheat, our supposed earliest crops, now date 2,000 years after the fig. Alongside this, it makes sense that the fig is a prominent feature in our earliest recorded instances of religion. Within the pantheon of deities in early Babylon is a goddess named Ishtar, who is considered the queen of heaven, the most important feminine figure in this faith system. She was the goddess of war, but also femininity and sexuality. One of her divine forms is that of a fig tree. Similar goddesses represented in earlier Sumerian mythology and later Egyptian mythology are also represented by the fig, and thus the fig itself is associated with the feminine aspect of humanity. 
oftentimes trees are strongly tied to various gender aspects. For example, oaks are generally masculine trees, while willows are feminine. Some trees represent both these genders, while others do not represent gender at all. It is believed the fig is associated with femininity because of early observations of the gendered nature of the tree. Common figs are dioecious, the species yielding two different types, with one producing pollen and the other taking the pollen and creating the seed-bearing fruits. And because the fruit-bearing fig, which is the one that feeds us, is considered the female type, the fig is given feminine attributes in ancient symbolism. The gendered nature of the fig in general is something that is noted as important throughout history from ancient Mesopotamia to the Roman Republic. It is not always so common that plants have a male form and a female form, and so it becomes a curiosity that the fig is like us in having gender. And so we also end up with the fig not just representing femininity, but humanity in general. This is one aspect of its importance in the Abrahamic faiths of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. One of the key events in the book of Genesis is Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and subsequently getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But there's a lot of discourse around what kind of tree this forbidden fruit came from. In media, it is often depicted as an apple, but there's not a lot of strong primary sources that suggest why this would be. One solid argument is that the fruit was instead a fig. The reason being that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they suddenly became aware and ashamed of their nakedness and sought to cover themselves up. And they did so by taking fig leaves and creating a sort of underwear out of them. What's interesting is that the fig is specifically named when referencing these leaves. It's the first instance of a specific plant name being used in the Abrahamic text. And so, if they ate this mysterious fruit and then immediately covered up with fig leaves, the suggestion is that the leaves and the fruit came from the same tree. What still engages my curiosity is the fig was intentionally named when describing the leaves, but the forbidden fruit is just called fruit. Why would Moses, author of the Torah and the first five chapters of the Old Testament, attribute a name for one and not the other, if they were the same thing. The only thing I can imagine is that, in the same moment they learned what naked and shame were, they also learned that the name of the tree was Fig. Or maybe it's something else, I don't know. In Torah scripture and various Jewish writings, the Fig symbolizes our connection to God. This also makes me slightly wary of the theory that the forbidden fruit was a fig, because eating it was the first act of defiance against God's will. Regardless, the symbolism remains. My favorite example of the symbolism of the fig being our connection to the divine is a certain proverb. The proverb references how the fig tree ripens multiple times throughout the year and relates that to the inspiration of scripture basically saying, you won't necessarily get all there is to get from one visit, you can come back to the tree, or the Torah, multiple times and find something new to nourish you every time. It's examples like this that is really chef's kiss to me, taking a biological phenomenon and further developing our own human culture based on it. But the biggest way in which the fig symbolizes our connection to God has to do with how the Torah ends. 
the Jewish Torah runs parallel to the first five chapters of the Old Testament of the Christian Bible. It's the section that specifically covers the history of the Jewish people from creation to the arrival at the Promised Land of Israel and is only written by Moses. When the scripture ends with the discovery of Israel, Moses knows it to be what he was searching for because his scouts, or spies, returned to him with a bounty of food crops known as the seven species. Finding these proved the land was fertile and would support the Jewish people. It is a connection with God because it is God who is providing this food and this land for his people. This is where the holiday Tubishvat comes in, the tree new year. The new year exists to collectively age the fruiting trees that provide us with food. This is done because the age of a fruiting tree is very important in regards to what you should do with its fruit. The first three years a tree produces fruit, it should be left alone. I've always assumed that this is to allow the tree to have a chance to reproduce and thus make more food. On the fourth year, the fruits are supposed to be tithed to God and thanks for providing us with this food. And then from the fifth year on, you can eat the fruit. Another source I've read suggests the years measured by the tree new year are used to track this seven-year agricultural cycle found in some biblical law. The various years within the cycle ultimately divide up how much of a farmer's crop is supposed to be given to different types of people and where these people are supposed to consume the crop. These laws only exist within Israel, however. Now, the name Tubishvat is in reference to the date, which is the 15th day of the month Shavat in the Hebrew calendar. This calendar doesn't exactly line up with our modern Gregorian calendar, so the date moves around from year to year. In 2023, Tu will be celebrated on Monday, February 6th, which is why I'm talking about the fig now, so we can look forward to this holiday with some newfound lore in mind. Stemming off of the fig's importance in Judaism, we see continued representation of the fig as man's connection with God in the New Testament of the Christian Bible. There is a parable involving a fruitless fig tree that, interestingly enough, is told in a few different versions. But the common features of the tale involve Jesus and his followers coming upon a fig tree fully leafed out but lacking fruit. And Jesus remarks about the trouble with this situation, likening it to someone who presents as a follower of God, but does not substantially produce as one. You know, talks the talk, but doesn't walk the walk. In one version, Jesus tries to fertilize the tree and support its fruit growth, while in another, he curses it and causes it to wither and die. Hmm. Other references to the fig in the New Testament tie it back to the sense of identity for the people of Israel. In one instance, Jesus sees one of his disciples, Nathanael, from afar and calls to him. Nathanael wonders how Jesus knew it was him from so far away, and Jesus remarks that he knew him because he was sitting under a fig tree. Quote, an Israelite indeed. On a few other occasions, Jesus and his followers discuss how seeing a fig tree always indicates that they are arriving home, tying this plant to that sense of place. I very much relate to this sentiment. As I've moved all over the U.S., I have various feelings of comfort based on the plants that make up the environment wherever I am living. For example, I spent a couple years working as a biologist in northern Wisconsin, which shares much of the same plant species with New England. Moving to New England came with a small sense of homecoming, as I was once again seeing eastern white pines, sugar maples, and aspens all together. 
the fig representing the spirit of the place carries over into Islamic faith as well. There is a chapter of the Quran called At-Tin, which translates to the fig. The chapter essentially describes how humans are created as superior beings, but can be brought low if they are not believers and do not do righteous deeds. The fig is mentioned in the opening lines of the chapter, and some believe it to be in reference to a sacred mountain alongside other sacred locations shared in the lines to follow. Another interpretation could draw back to the connection between the fig and people in general, considering how this chapter, titled The Fig, is referencing the nature in which humans are crafted. Apparently, the Prophet Muhammad was a big lover of figs, and according to Islamic dream interpretations, dreaming about figs indicates prosperity is in your future. The connection of figs to prosperity makes sense. At the end of the day, it is food, and what more is there to prospering than always having enough food? And the fact that it is food is how the common fig managed to gain importance beyond the Levant region, first to other civilizations in the Mediterranean. Ancient Greece connected the fig with Demeter, the goddess of harvest and plenty. Makes sense, it's a crop. The fig is also associated with a titan by the name of Sikius. This connection is still around to this day, as the Greek word for fig is siko, and the weird type of flower that figs make, you know, the whole inside-out deal, that structure is called a syconium. We also see the fig mentioned in a story from the Odyssey, when Odysseus is battling against the whirlpool known as Charybdis, it is the low-hanging branches of a fig tree that he grabs hold of to save himself, which ultimately gives the common fig some protection symbolism. I've actually attributed protection symbolism to so many trees that I'm going to make that the focus of my first patron stretch goal on Patreon. I'll set an amount of patrons I'd like to get to, and when we hit it, I'll release an edited, smashed-together cut of all the times I've said, this tree also has protection symbolism. Head on over to patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees for more information. One more instance of the fig's prevalence in Greek mythology is a connection to Dionysus, the god of wine and revelry. My assumption here is that figs are just so sweet that when you eat one, it surely feels like this is some taboo delicacy. This detail helps me transition to Roman culture, because the Roman version of Dionysus, Bacchus, also loved figs. But aside from this, and the idea that figs were tasty, this tree did not see as much value in Roman culture. Romans were oftentimes more into strength. They liked oaks with their tough wood, and laurels with their leaves that just don't fall off. So the soft fleshiness of a fig fruit was not something that really represented an ideal Roman attitude. And yet, the figs still managed to play an important role in Roman history. Back in the day, Rome hated no one more than Carthage, a kingdom that existed along the southern coast of the Mediterranean in northern Africa. There were three whole wars fought between them over the course of 80 years, called the Punic Wars. In the 2nd century BCE, a Roman politician named Cato the Elder was visiting Carthage and was distraught to see how well Rome's rival was recovering after their last war, and he decided that it was time to kick their butts once more. But he needed a justification for utilizing Rome's military resources. The rest of the Roman Senate was still convinced that Carthage was no longer a threat to them. But then one day, Cato showed up to the Senate eating a fresh fig. 
Now, the fact that it was a fresh fig was significant. Something very interesting but also difficult about figs is that they do not preserve well at all. And they do not continue to ripen after being taken off the branch, so they can't be pre-picked. When figs are traded long distances, they are first dried, which allows them to keep for much longer. So when the other senators saw Cato's tasty treat, they asked him where he got such a thing. And Cato said, Oh, this? Oh, this is a Libyan fig. You know, funny thing about Libyan figs is that they are only grown in Carthage. And it's so very interesting that Carthage is so close to us that figs can be transported all the way to Rome and still be fresh. Huh. Well, when I say it like that, it really unsettles me that our mortal enemy is that close to us. Makes me think, we should do something about that. And so the other senators agreed with him and decided that if Carthage's figs could get here so fast, then so could their warships. So they decided to begin fighting the Third Punic War because of a fig. Other Romans of the time did not see the fig as a potential for bloodshed, but as a great source of nutrition. These foods were written about essentially as a superfood of the day. Figs are very nutrient-dense, full of antioxidants, fiber, all those different good vitamins our body needs, and more. And they're also full of natural sugar, which makes them super sweet and delicious on top of being good for you. All of this together made it an in-demand commodity to be traded throughout Europe across the centuries. But again, figs perish quickly, so anyone outside of fig-producing nations only sees them in dried form or canned as preserves. Figs became a staple across Europe, especially during the holidays. I mean, what would Christmas be if someone didn't bring us some figgy pudding? I mean, I've never had figgy pudding at Christmas, but maybe this is the year. It very well could be, despite my not being in the land of Charles Dickens, because when Europe's explored the New World, where I live, they brought figs with them. And just like in so many other instances, missionaries who came upon California noted how similar the climate was to the Mediterranean region and realized that the same crops there could grow here. Even to this day, California is the only state in the U.S. to produce figs. They're very particular about where they like to grow. One difficulty that missionaries had with growing figs in California is that when they brought the trees over, they forgot to bring the wasps too. So this was where the artificial reproduction came in handy, with the whole pretending to be a wasp, but not in a weird way. Which actually brings me back to that question. If you eat a fig, are you also eating wasps? After all, if there are other ways to grow these fruit, why would you want to involve wasps in this process? And yet, it is still very common for wasps to be used for fig reproduction on farms. Oftentimes, they will simplify the process by taking male capra figs with wasps in them and hang them next to female cyconia that are waiting to be pollinated. You know, shortens the commute time, cuts down on traffic. But you're more likely to find a worm in your apple than a wasp in your fig. The wasps that are born in the fig all leave the fruit. And while the mama wasp that lost her wings while crawling in and died after giving birth never left the fig, her body fully dissolves before the fig ripens. So, like, part of the fig is made up of matter that used to be a wasp? 
but is in no way, shape, or form a wasp anymore. Just don't think about it. You're fine. And if you've never tried a fig, now is the time to get some, even if they're not the fresh fruit. One of the traditions associated with Tubishvat is eating fruits and nuts from Israel, particularly the seven species. It's especially important to either try a new fruit or to eat a fruit that you haven't had in a while. For the last two tree New Years, I've led this practice by eating my topic tree in the episode. I tried a pomegranate, which was a new experience, and I tried an olive, which was an okay experience. I did eat some figs like on my own a year ago, but I went ahead and got some to keep the tradition going. Okay, so in past years, I've gotten like whole fruits, like a whole pomegranate and a whole olive. Well, technically a huge jar of olives, but I only ate one. Um, This year, I went to go get some dried figs because that's what's available to me. But then I kind of switched gears because I found this fig spread. And I switched because the dried figs were grown in California, which is typical. And the fig spread was made from figs that were picked along the Mediterranean coast. And I was like, well, this is a little bit more original. So I spread this fig spread on a Kellogg's Club cracker. We're going to give it a try. That's very good. It reminds me, believe it or not, of Fig Newtons, which I haven't had in a long time, but this just brought back childhood memories. It's very tasty. It is a very good, tasty, sweet fruit. Hold on. I have an idea. I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. That's the magic of audio editing. I went and got some Vermont goat cheese made with clover blossom honey. And I'm going to put that on the cracker with my fig spread. Because I'm bougie. Oh yeah. That makes me feel... That makes me feel like I should be wearing a toga in Dionysus's court. Being fed just absolute delicacies like this. Go do that. Go try, go go get some goat cheese and some fig spread and put that on crackers. Just give yourself a really nice day. Or just go get figs in whatever form you want to. Dried figs, if you can get fresh figs, even better. Or a fig spread with crackers. Savor this sweet flavor and do it alongside this rich human history that comes with it. Happy Tubishvat to my Jewish listeners. Happy Tree New Year to all. This week, I'd like to give a huge shout-out to one of my patrons, Tony K. Tony is a very sweet man who sent me some locally roasted coffee beans after listening to my last episode on the coffee tree, and I cannot wait to use them. When we hit our stretch goal, he's going to get a great reward for supporting this show in the form of a mashup of all the times I have attributed protection symbolism to various trees. It's going to be great. You can join Tony and several others in supporting My Favorite Trees by going to patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees. On February 7th, the day after Tubishvat, there is a fantastic book hitting the shelves called A Forest Journey, The Role of Trees in the Fate of Civilization by John Perlin. This book was originally published in 1989, but is getting a hot new reprint full of the most up-to-date research regarding our historic relationship with trees and deforestation and what challenges our societies face if we cannot change the dark sides of this relationship. I am very excited to sit down with the book's author, John Perlin, 
and talk all about this subject. In two weeks, you'll hear his thoughts on the stories he's uncovered, how and why this new edition came together, and more. I cannot wait for you to hear our musings over tree history, and I hope you can't either. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you have the time, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. My cover art is at Boomerang Brit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at My Favorite Trees or on Instagram at Tree Podcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>